0: So tonight we pick it up in verse 13, and we're going to connect the the narrow way. You will know them by their fruits, and Jesus saying, I never knew you. And the common denominator of these three different clusters of scriptures is they all really deal with heaven. In fact, the latter part we're going to see in a moment gives us insight to what can be said when people stand before the Lord in heaven. And so the first part tells us the way to heaven. The second part tells us, those who would deceive a a wrong way and to keep people from getting to heaven. And then the third part is a warning about what happens in heaven for people who didn't actually obey the Lord. So really what connects all this together is heaven's reality. So we pick it up in verse 13 where Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And again, all this really deals with heaven. How do we get to heaven? Who's who's trying to keep us from getting there? And how does that work? And then the warning to not be caught off guard when you get to heaven. So we'll just go in order with these passages. The first one, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. In fact, the first word the, there's a key word with each one of these three segments. So the first one is just enter. That word enter just jumps out at you. Enter. The other one is beware. So you have an enter and a beware, and then the third one is not. Like what's not going to happen. So the first word in all three of these segments really jumps out to me personally: enter, beware, and not. And so that's how we're going to really frame it and look at it tonight. So enter by the narrow gate. Jesus, of course is the narrow gate. He's the door, the gospel of John tells us, he's the the door of entrance. There that last night with his apostles, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, most of us here know that and believe that, but maybe not all of us, so it's important to understand that. In the marketplace of thought, where people present thoughts, and you can compare thoughts, When we compare the thoughts of religious leaders, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, Moses, but Moses directed everyone to Jesus, so that's really kind of not fair to put Moses in there. But just the different world religions that have so much variation, Hinduism, just all these different things. And then bring in human philosophies like Darwinism, Marxism, and communism and these sorts of things that uh, shape our thinking. The marketplace of thought. You can bring all these different ideas and you can come to a conclusion that not all these ideas could possibly be correct particularly with world religions because of course growing up in the 80s I just always remember hearing that all roads lead to God now being raised Catholic I was I believed in Jesus as the son of God but when you say like well that's just that's just the way the Japanese worship God through Buddha and, and that's just the way the Hindus worship God through like the many gods and being ignorant of the scriptures and just being ignorant of world religions and what they believe I just be like well, that just seems odd to me, but, I, you know, it is what it is. And again, in my own world, going to Japan as a teenager and seeing the shrines and all this stuff, I'd be like, I'm not sure how that would work with Jesus. And then going to Bali, which is a Hindu island there in Indonesia, and actually going to a Hindu temple going like, like how does this dragon creature thing have anything to do with Jesus? Like I would just naturally think that in just common sense, not even critical thinking. I'm just like, how does that all, like how would that possibly work? And of course, not even being saved in the early 80s, but when the Muslim terrorists blew up the Beirut there, and they blew up all the couple hundred Marines, that was so shocking to all of us that are older, like, I would, I remember seeing, like, how, like, how could that, how could that be God? Like, how would God want these guys to drive a truck up and blow up all these people and say that's God? So in my own mind, in coming to a place of faith in Christ, with a Catholic background, I would look at Something done in the name of God—the Muslims terrorists blowing up the Marines in Beirut—and I'd look at this Hindu temple and bawling like, "How's that work?" And then I'd be in Tokyo looking at shrines and then having uh, the the Book of Buddha in the—I remember it tripping me out that the Book of Buddha was in the hotel instead of Gideon's Bible. Like, just one of those things when you're traveling as a Western, You're Like, well, that's that's really different. You know, like, how how can that be? And and I had this. So these are different marketplaces' thoughts. But what we'd hear, I always remember, always hearing the ADA, like, oh, all roads lead to heaven. Well, actually, they cannot possibly lead to heaven. And most of you know that, but these ideologies are diametrically opposed to each other. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. And when Jesus said, I am the way, he's the narrow gate. I am the truth, absolute truth, and the life, eternal life, abundant life, joyful life, no one comes to the Father, but through me. That is a very exclusive statement that eliminates the Hindu temple in Bali, the shrines in Tokyo, and Muslim terrorists blowing up Marines in Beirut and their theology. It eliminates that. Now, someone could say, well, I don't believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and so I, I reject that. And you could say that, but the same person who would choose subjectively to say, I don't believe that, if they have any common sense and even reasonable cognitive skills, they'd have to conclude, though, the statement of Jesus becomes incredibly exclusive to being harmonized with world religions. So that same person who would say, I don't believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life would have to say, I don't believe all roads lead to God either because Jesus clearly is in conflict with all these other world religions, so they can't possibly be harmonious. That would just be, that's not even critical thinking. That's just common sense in the marketplace of thought. In other words, they can all be wrong, but if Jesus is right, he's right, and they're all wrong, but they can't all be right. So we can't form faulty theologies objectively, because objective is facts. So when we study world religions, we know they can't all be right. They can all be wrong, but they can't all be right. Because this John 14, 6 right there says it all. And again, if you think about the early church, there's Peter and John before the religious leaders. And when they're on trial or given account for the miracle healing of the lame man there in Acts chapter 3, they say they're filled with the Spirit. And they say there's no other name given among men that is all humanity, human history, by which we can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, we have something very interesting, too, because John's Gospel is interesting because Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and then there can be some question as to the latter part of John, chapter 3. Is Jesus talking, or is this the narrative of the Holy Spirit through uh, the Apostle John recording it in the canon of Scripture? Can't say for sure, but we do know for sure is, it says this, he that has the son has life and has the father too, but he who does not have the son does not have the father and the wrath of God abides upon them. That's the narrow gate. This is objective theological doctrinal truth of the New Testament scriptures and the Bible's overall declaration. Because, of course, there in the Garden of Eden, literal man, Adam and Eve, the head of our race 6,000 years ago, young earth, they chose to rebel against God, and they sinned. And death entered the universe, thus all die in Adam. And the death sentence is on all of us. So even when we're born, we're dying. Even as the universe is expanding with trillions of galaxies, it's expanding outward but it's dying at the same time. That's entropy. It's a law of science. And the Bible tells us from within its own declaration that the whole universe is dying, and everything in it is dying because Adam sinned on this planet as the head of our race. Thus, sin entered the universe, and it's all dying. So until Christ comes and establishes the new heaven and the new earth, it's all dying. Trillions of galaxies in this universe are dying as they're being birthed, just like newborn babies are dying. I've got two grandkids here visiting from Florida this weekend, and I'm looking at Remy right before service. He's this beautiful young boy, five months old now. He's growing, but at the same time, he's dying. And he's dying because Adam sinned and brought sin on us. And in Adam, all sin and all die. And there in that first prophecy of Genesis 3.15, we're reminded that God promised that he would crushed that he would crush the serpent and he would promise the messiah to come and from that time on jesus was promised to come and crush satan who is that serpent of old that dragon satan as he's referred to in the bible and he's the father of lies so remember jesus is the way the truth and life but satan is the father of lies has god really said the day you from the street you will not die he's a liar he's a liar from the beginning that's what jesus said He's the father of lies, and there is no truth in him. Even as Jesus is the light of the world, and God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. It's impossible for God to lie. We're told that in the scriptures. It's completely contrary to his nature. Whereas Satan is the father of lies, and his fall from beauty. In the presence of the Lord, he became the father of lies. And everything he does is based upon lies and deceit. Thus, we see even in the end game for the end of the age, for humanity, the number one mark of the end game is deception, delusion, and deceit through the father of lies. The Bible makes that very clear. And there from Genesis 3, all the way to all the typologies of Somebody has to die for the guilty, so Adam and Eve sin, and an animal's blood is shed, and they understand the concept. You eat from this tree, you'll die. So they didn't die right then, but the death sentence entered the universe and upon their bodies, and somebody had to die, and an animal was sacrificed in their place. Then throughout these different covenants with Adam and Noah, of course, Abel brought a blood sacrifice when he, his brother Cain killed him. They understood this. And so the substitutionary sacrifice system went all the way through to the time that Christ came. And we know what he said on that last day. Well, not on the last day, but before the last day. You search the scriptures, for them you think they have life, you have life. He said this to the religious leaders, but they are that which declare me to you. And after he rose from the grave, he said to the apostles, all these things had to be fulfilled the Messiah had to come and fulfill the law, the prophets, and the Psalms of the Old Testament. So everything from Genesis to the New Testament, Malachi, are prophecies, typologies, and even theophanies where Christ appears in the Old Testament. And he fulfills it all when he comes born of the virgin without the sin nature that in Adam all sin and die, but in the second Adam are made alive. He's born of the virgin. He does not have the sin nature in him like we all do, like Remy does, my grandson. And he He lives a perfect sinless life. Again, remember the perfect toddler, the perfect junior, higher, middle schooler, perfect high school student, perfect college student, perfect man, perfect citizen. Jesus is light, and Him is no darkness at all. And He never sinned. Jesus never sinned. So when He dies on the cross in our place, He is now paying the price for our sins. And the animal, the sacrifices of blood and bulls and goats could never take away the sins for humanity because as wonderful as animals are, they're not created in God's image, nor do they have the cognitive capacity to worship God and know God. Humanity is made in God's image. Humanity is the crown jewel of all of God's creation. You know, in this entire universe, not only is earth the center of the universe, which it is, the compound probability that life could exist on any planet is like one to like the... Ten trillionths power. Like, just the things that have to happen for us to have life on this planet to live. It's like, the compound laws of probability are just insanity. This is it. With trillions of galaxies, this is the center of the universe. And the hairs on your head are the apple of Christ's eyes in this universe. You. You personally. Christ came and died for you. And in this universe with all these super galaxies and suns in our own galaxy that would extend from our sun to Saturn right now, in all this incredible macro universe, you, you, the disciple of Jesus Christ, me, are the center of the universe. And here on this planet is where God came to die on the cross for our sins. It is here where sin brought death on the universe. It's here where the Son of God came to the universe to retract and nullify that death. And the blood of bulls and goats could never take that away. They spoke of things to come. Thus John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He connects Jesus to the Passover Lamb of the Old Testament. But a lamb is not created in man's image. A lamb doesn't wake up and have a cognitive understanding of God. But we do, because the Ecclesiastes tells us he's put eternity in our hearts. And there truly is a hole in our heart. And until we come to Christ, there's an incompleteness. And so Christ came, the narrow gate, the way, and he paid that price. That was the blood of a bull and goat could never do. And you can't die for your sins because you're already dying for your sins. You can't, I can't die for your sins to save you from your sins because I'm dying for my own sins. Like every other human being that's ever lived. It has to be Christ, born of the virgin, without the sin in his DNA. See, we have sin in every cell of our body. Christ had sinlessness in every cell of his body. Humanity and deity is one. The son of man, the son of God. So when he dies on the cross and says it's finished, he means it's finished. He paid the price. So he changed the course of the universe with his death on the cross and his resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel message is what alters the entire universe, and thus Roman 8 says that all creation is groaning for the redemption of all things, but we're the prize, the jewel of that redemption. It's not yet revealed what we will be, but when he comes in his glory, we will be in his glory. So when we think about the narrow gate, when we think about the way, the truth, and the life, and the other way, you, you can't even, when we just lay out the gospel message, and God's revealing it himself and the gospel message to humanity from the dawn of creation to fall, when you put this out here with world religions, let alone like the the lies and deceit of people like Darwin and Marx and these these people who plot evil and wink the eye and shuffle the feet. It's, It's just incompatible. Jesus is light. This is darkness. This is justification. This is condemnation. This is heaven. This is hell. This is life. This is death. This is Jesus. This is Satan. Because we're either governed by Jesus or we're governed by Satan. I bought the song again recently, Bob Dylan, slow train coming. You're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil, and it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. $1.29 Apple Music. I bought the album in the 80s, and I remember when I bought the album in the 80s at Warehouse Records, you know what they told me? It's not really the Bob Dylan you know. And I said, I know, and that's why I'm buying it. Slow train coming. It's out there on Apple Music. You can grab it. So Jesus says enter by the narrow way. There are no other ways. For wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go thereby. You want to go to hell? Do nothing. You want to go to heaven? Repent and trust in Jesus and receive him as Lord and Savior. My son-in-law, Nate Gallagher, taught a message last week at Vero Beach filling in for his dad because his dad was here in California doing the married couples retreat for Bill Welsh and Refuge. And Nate's message was, did you share the gospel? Because he just taught Acts to the youth group, and I was there when he was teaching the Acts to the youth group. And he's like, did you, did you share the good news? That's our primary purpose. The church's primary good purpose on earth is to share the good news, to know it, and then to live it and to share it. Enter by the narrow gate. I believe most of us are entering by the narrow gate, but it's not rocket science. If you got Jesus, you got life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. It's it's that simple. Either we're saved or we're not. It's that simple. That's why Jesus said, unless you have the faith of a child, you can by no means enter the kingdom of God. My daughter Hannah is here tonight and she won't remember it, but I remember it when we lived in Hillridge Court, our second house there in Virginia Beach. I remember coming home, and she was too. and her vocabulary was thousands of words at two. She'll tell the other siblings, she is the smartest one in the room, although Luke is the, the genius. But I'll never forget, I got home, and she said, Daddy, I asked Jesus into my heart today. And I, now listen, that's exactly what you think, I got... Oh, and she goes, No, I mean it. That's what she said. John Corson would tell you he gave his life to Christ at the age of two as well. You would underestimate a five year old and their ability to comprehend Christ unless they were dying of cancer, then you'd suddenly realize, Well, of course they can understand things. Zippy's four, our granddaughter she can count to 20 now. So her math in her world is 1 to 20. Now when she's in third grade, it'll be different math, right? Seventh grade, different math. High school, different math. Maybe college, different math. But it's all math. So the whole cycle we go with the life of Jesus is that Receiving Christ, the good news of believing he truly died for us. He's our Savior. Because what did Gabriel say to Mary? You'll call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Savior is his name. And we start out with a very simple math, and then we might understand all these deep things of the things of God as we go through trials and tribulations of the human experience and all the things that you face if you live a rich, full life. But in the end, you end up like Billy Graham in your late 90s, and you might get a little fuzzy, but he's just, he's just telling us about Jesus and having your faith and trust in Jesus like a childlike faith. And true to the human experience, if you live long enough, you'll start out in diapers and you will end in diapers. That is an absolute fact of the human experience. If you live long enough, that's the way it'll go. So we can receive Christ at two like Hannah, or you can receive Christ like the thief on the cross in the last moments of life, or you can receive Christ uh, on your deathbed and responding with, you know, tapping and saying, yes, I believe that or something, and these things happen, or you can receive Christ with a full understanding of what that means in your life, and you can live a rich, full life for Jesus, which is ideal, because then you're able to fulfill to the fullness those things that he has intended for our life. coming up on 34 years now my, since I've received Christ into my life. Many of you, it's longer than that. Some of you, of course, it's shorter than that. But we enter by the narrow gate. Jesus is the narrow gate, and he's the only gate by which we go to heaven. That's what I like about memorials. Memorials are pretty intense. Funerals and memorials. we got a couple coming up this week. And they're There's a spiritual battle for all of them. But the thing about memorials, it brings eternity to everybody. And I can get up, or Anthony Dean can get up. He's doing his first memorial next week, Pastor Anthony. And no matter all that's going on, all I need to do is present the gospel of Jesus Christ in truth to the people there. And I know in presenting Jesus that I'm presenting what they need to hear I don't have to work something up. I don't have to conjure something up. I don't have to whip up some recipe, some motivational speech. You know, I'm not like Lincoln going to Gettysburg or something. No, I just, I just show up and I share Jesus. And the Holy Spirit confirms everybody there that Jesus is truth, Jesus is the way, and he's the resurrection of life, and you're going to stand before him, and you can stand in glory or stand in condemnation, but you will stand. And Memorials make everyone think about eternity. So not only that, it becomes a home game. Because when there's mirth and partying, everyone's like, ooh, house music, boom, 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 boom. You're like, no one's thinking about eternity. When they're sitting in the sanctuary, like they're going to be here on Tuesday, they're going to be thinking about eternity. And as a minister of the gospel, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I, you, me, we, we have the answers for eternity. It's a glorious thing that a two year old can understand the gospel, a fuzzy 98 year old, and anyone in between who's willing to soften their heart and respond to Jesus Christ. And you know, we're not trying to direct people to a religious system. It's not going like to get up and try and convert someone to like Jesus plus Mormonism or Jesus plus Jehovah's Witnesses or something or whatever you can come up with. <laughs> Just give, give them Jesus. The thief on the cross needed Jesus who was right next to him. He didn't need some, like, plus 10 and 1. He was just, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like, that's... When he came to Martha and Mary and said, I'm the resurrection of life, do you believe that? He didn't say, now, can you give me a theological description of what that all means? He says, do you believe I'm the resurrection of life? And Mary said at first, yes, Lord, I believe, we believe that you are. Yeah. Aren't you glad that the play call for heaven is simple enough for a two-year-old and a fuzzy 98-year-old to understand it? I'm so glad God keeps it simple because we make everything complicated. The more you get humanity in there, the more complex we make it. I remember coming back from Ensenada surfing one time with my good friend David Barr from Carlsbad. We were driving back. And it became one of those religious conversations. And he just asked me, like, why are there so many different churches? And I was like, well, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's, it's church history, really. And, and, you know, it's like, and you can go down this rabbit hole you never come out of if you're trying to justify church history and the good things and bad things that people have done in Jesus' name. But if you just simply lift up Jesus and direct them to Jesus, then you're not, you're not going to get lost. You'll never get lost when you point people to Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of the world. And that's what people need right now. Is men's hearts are failing them, perplexity of nations, and great deception and delusion. We enter by the narrow gate. In verse fifteen, he said, "Beware of false prophets." The the challenge with the narrow gate. So all our eyes on Jesus. Our theology is very simple. It can grow and expand. But again, by the time someone's helping us go to the bathroom in our nineties, whatever, it's 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 all just going to be Jesus. We're looking for Jesus to come. In fact, I have to say one more thing about this. I've, I just did a, a last rites this week as well. Where I prayed for someone stepping into eternity. My good friend uh, Mick Yarbrough called me, and his mom was stepping into eternity. Francis Yarbrough and I know Mrs. Yarbrough very well because Danny Yarbrough was my best friend growing up in Carlsbad. We got a lot of trouble. We got busted for shoplifting a couple times. The old Big Bear there on Elm Street, a couple other things, Safeway, you know. And, uh, old Mrs. Yarbrough had all these boys and. Uh, I have seen Mrs. Job in a long time, and I saw her on Monday in Escondido in her last few days. And I was able to just pray with her and pray over her. But you know what's so cool when you do that for someone who, who, who has faith? is I did this for my father, and I'm like, hey, Jesus is coming, all right? Like, you're laying right there. You can't move. You can't change yourself. You're laying right there. I'm telling you right now, see more on my shoulder right here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where Jesus is coming. Okay, he's going to come right through here, You don't have to do anything. You know, he's coming. You're like waiting at the bus stop. He's coming. He's going to come for you like Elijah, like he came for Elijah with the chariot of fire. He's coming from another dimension. You sit right there, and he's coming for you. Do you understand? He's coming for you right here, because I've seen it. I've seen Jesus come for Moses Henning Camp, and I, I watched her response when Jesus came in the room. And she went right past me, right to that wall. Jesus came. He was there. Like when Paul heard Jesus speaking to him, everyone else has heard a noise, like, I was in the room when Jesus came for Melissa Henning Camp, and I'm a spectator, but she got out of her deathbed out of a coma and got out of the bed and was going right there. So now I go to see people in their last house. I go, like, hey, he's coming right here. So my father-in-law was dying a year ago it, over there at the assisted living. I'm like, hey, Bill, man, Jesus is coming. Oh. I'm like, yeah, he's coming. He's coming right here. And you stay right there and you keep your eyes on Jesus. We're trusting in Jesus. Just looking unto Jesus, the author and finish our faith. Bill, can you do that? Ah. He wasn't talking to anybody his last few days. He was talking to me, his son in law. He was talking to me. He was talking to me. Because I was the ambassador of Christ, preparing him for the king's coming. Oh, it's a glorious thing to step into eternity with Jesus. That's the end game. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But the devil, the father of lies, wants to prevent that glory from happening. And thus, Jesus has to bring up unpleasant things. It was like Joe's song, when Joe was singing that song about, I've seen you defeat cancer, I've seen you defeat all this, and I have seen Jesus defeat all that. Donna, I thought of you defeating cancer, okay? I, I thought of different people, different things. And, you know, of course, I naturally think of people who didn't defeat cancer. I think of things that prayers weren't answered, right? When you pray, you get yes, no, or wait some people are raised up from their deathbed, and some people aren't. Some people are in prison, and they get beheaded. James, the apostle. Some people are in prison, and an angel lets them go. Peter, the apostle. And there are things that sometimes I just don't like to think about. To be honest, I don't like to think about cancer. I don't. But uh, if I'm going to sing about it, I'm going to sing about victory over cancer in Jesus' name. So thank you, Joe. That's a powerful song, man. Because I've seen miracles. I have. We've seen miracles. I can sing that song. I'm going to get those words, too. It's going to take a couple times, but I'll get it. There are people who misrepresent the way to heaven. And they are called, right here, false prophets. And we're warned about them. We're told to look out for false prophets. So often with Scripture, we get the positive and the negative. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 comparing the babylonians to the person of faith like daniel and esther put off the old man put on the new man we get contrast so jesus here makes it so clear he's the way the gate the door but there's 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 a broad path that leads to destruction and there are many false apostles and prophets that to lead people down that road. So all you have to do is go to any major higher education devoid of Christ, and even those that claim Christ can be devoid of Christ. And there are people who think they're smarter than the God of the universe, who's got a trillion galaxies called by name, to confuse you, to stumble you, and to keep you in darkness. Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, as the scripture says. And they are the blind leading the blind. And so much of pseudo higher education is just that. So it was once great seminaries in the Ivy League schools in the colonial era. We now have atheists who are the chaplains of those schools. It's madness. But the devil loves madness and insanity because he's the author of madness and insanity. There are many false ways. They are endless. If you want to be religious, there's plenty of false ways. If you want to have Jesus who's not God, you can have that Jesus. You want to have Jesus who's not really a flesh, you can have that Jesus. There are many false Jesuses. You can you can shop for them online right now. But the Jesus of the Bible is the eternal Son of God by whom all things are made, for whom all things are made, and in whom all things are held together and consist. But there's Jesus out there there's lots of churches in America that have Jesus who's not the Son of God. They have Jesus who never had a physical body. They have Jesus who didn't resurrect in their, in their theology. And they have a Jesus is not the only way. And they increase in our time. But the Bible tells us that false apostles, false doctrines, and false teachings would increase in the last days. So it's unpleasant. As unpleasant There's so many other things that are going on around us right now that are realities that affect our lives. It's unpleasant. I don't like false prophets and false teachers and false teachings. They turn my stomach. I don't like falsehood. You don't like falsehood. No one likes to be lied to. When someone says they're going to do this and then do that, (laughs) like, like, no one likes that. That's why Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything other than this is it's not of the Lord. Funny, funny thing about false prophets and false teachers and all these false ways, they never tell you they're the false prophet, the false teacher, and the false way. I would say for my life right now, in 33 years, 34 years, it's science. I've yet to meet someone who ever said, hi, I'm the false prophet Jesus warned you of. You know what Matthew 7 says, beware? I'm the one to beware of. No, you have to discern them you have to discern them. And how do you discern them? By their fruit. So whether it's religious false prophets or secular humanist false prophets, you have to discern them by their fruit. What is their views in the marketplace of thought? What do those views produce in humanity and in their perception of God or representing God? So again, thinking back to the Beirut bombing in 82 when the terrorists blew up all the Marines, it's like... I have to decide, is that the God of the Bible who's the God of love that would, you know, do that? Because my God of the Bible is Jesus who gave his life. He didn't take life. He gave it. See, that's a big difference with a lot of theologies. With militant Hindus right now killing Christians in India and taking their property. And now I'm going to be at the community well and stuff like that. The militant, gnarly Hindus all over India. They're gods or angry gods. And they kill people. And that is what they believe, and that's what's taught. But the Bible is God laid down his life for us, and we're to lay down our life for one another. So if someone says, I represent Jesus, and they take life, that's not what the Bible teaches. So you can't attach that to Jesus. That's what someone's doing in their own buffet of religion in their mind. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Let God be true and every man a liar. False prophets are real. They never tell you who they are. You have to discern them. You have to recognize them, and you have to, look, you have to see their fruit. It's not like we have to be fruit inspectors. Like, oh, I'm going to look for fruit. Listen, you can look at a fruit tree, and you can tell if it's got good fruit or bad fruit. My dad and Vista had all those fruit trees that were so awesome back in the 80s, the plum tree, the white peach, the apricot, all these trees. And, but he had an apple tree that was junk. You would never eat those apples. Like, they are bad apples, literally like bad apples. But man, his white, his, white, his white peaches were the best ever. I've never had white peaches that good. You know, a fruit tree, like, it's a good fruit tree, it's a bad fruit tree. You don't buy a fruit. Poisonous berries or wild blackberries. You can, you can just, you can tell. The fruit of someone's life is an indication of what their theology produces. So a guy like Karl Marx, who never worked and wanted to have someone else subsidize his life, Darwinism was a perfect theology for him. We'll take from everyone that works and redistribute it for people who don't work. Because I'm a bum. And that's what the Bolsheviks did. And that's what redistribution of wealth does in most cases. It's their theology. Hitler's Nazi socialism, national Nazi socialism. In that original statement that he sent out to the churches, they had to sign off on that the Jews were materialistic and evil. That was about 1935. And they're all signed off on it. I'm not really thinking what they're signing off on, but then when Jews are on trains going to death camps by 1940, 41, the church signed off on that, but not the Confessing Church, not Mueller and Bonhoeffer. Those guys are not part of that. See, you can always tell by the fruit. What's the fruit of this person's life? Do we see humility? Do we see grace? Do we see love? Do we see brokenness? Do we see compassion and forgiveness? That's the fruit of Jesus Christ. That's the fruit we should see from those who are teachers of truth and those who are representatives of truth. But when we see pride and arrogance and taking and conniving and the winking of the eyes and the shuffling of the feet and the twisting of Scripture out of context and the manipulation and the control of people, that's not Jesus When the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, Jesus was sad, but he didn't say, you better come back or else. He didn't manipulate the rich young ruler. He let himself determine what he's going to choose to do. When Jesus said, one thing you lack, go and sell all your goods and follow me. And he went away sad. He didn't, he didn't make him. See, Jesus, we talked about this last week, that self-determination that God allows us. In Revelation chapter 2, the first church there, church of Ephesus, when Jesus is talking to him, he said, you got some good things, you got some other things, but one thing you do good is you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and so do I. The Nicolaitans comes from the word Nicolaity, to rule over the congregation, those who manipulate and control. Beware of that. People who just love unconditionally, forgive, encourage, and build up and edify. Those are the people that represent Christ properly. We want to be those people. I want to be that person. Under construction, growth. There are so many Bible verses that warn in the New Testament of false prophets. But one key thing about false prophets before we move on is they deny Christ. In First John chapter two, he says they did. the spirit of antichrist is to deny Christ. So that's a real spirit of uh, false prophecy in the end game for Christ comes is to deny that Jesus is Christ. There's a lot of things they do. They have lying signs and wonders. They're covetous. They're self-willed. They're fussy, They're carnal. They're presumptuous. That's enough of them. That's the Broadway. You don't need me to tell you what the Broadway looks like. You can see it everywhere when you walk outside these doors, whether it's religious or secular humanism but you'll know them by their fruits. The Bible tells us to be careful who we follow, whose philosophies we follow, whose opinions we follow. The book of Proverbs is almost laid out completely for that, with wicked and righteousness, and it warns us about being in the assembly of the wicked. It tells us to choose our friends very wisely, and ideas are friends. Biblical ideas that are truth are good friends. Ungodly, worldly, secular, antichrist ideas are bad friends, and they both produce fruit. So choose good friends. Then the last thing we see is not everyone. So again, it starts out like enter the narrow gate. It's as happy as Hannah saying, Dad, I received Jesus. And then it's like, beware of false prophets. That's kind of like, that's not like happy feelings gone, right? Right, happy feelings gone. And then it's like not everyone. So it's this last little exhortation. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone. So this is interesting because as best I can discern, you have descriptions of heaven in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, I see the Lord, I am lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, right? We've got some passages like that. But as far as an idea, like what's it going to be like to step into eternity and stand before Jesus, there's not that much that you get. I mean, the Holy Spirit through Paul says to be absent from the bodies present with the Lord. Okay. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay. Our works will be tested by fire, whether it's wood, hay, stubble, or precious metals and jewelry. Okay. Ooh, you know, that's okay. But yeah, we that gives us some ideas. Paul saw heaven and its glory. He said, the third heaven, I can't describe it to you, not one word, because the moment any intellectual thought comes forth describing something or like a Chinese character, it will devalue the glory of what I saw and heard in heaven. So there's no human language that can capsulize the glory that Paul saw when he's caught up to heaven to be at the Lord. But Jesus, with red letters, twice tells us what to expect in heaven. Matthew 25 has the parable of the the talents, where the five, the one who got five got ten, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Then the one that had two got four. He says the exact same thing. The verses are identical. But then the third one buried their talent. And he said, oh, you're a rough man. And the context is a master going away and entrusting stuff. That's the context of the parable. Remember, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But Matthew twenty-five thirteen is ends with the, the, the ten virgins. So the five wise ones and the foolish ones keeping your lamp trimmed and burning. That's clearly second coming. And then after, I think it's chapter, verse 33 of five, it goes to the separation of the sheep and the goats at the end of the age. So in that parable the minas and the talents, where Jesus is describing what it will be like to stand before him, well done, good and faithful servant, or you're cast into outer darkness, which is what he says to the one who buried the mina. So either well done, good and faithful servant, or cast into outer darkness. We have to ask ourselves, is, is this something about heaven? Is this what to expect in heaven? I'd say yes, because the passage before this bookend is... Eternity in heaven, and the passage after is eternity in heaven. The whole chapter is eternity in heaven, and this is a parable, earthly story, heavenly meaning. And then we have this one. This is the this is the other one. What well, what can be expected in heaven? I remember years ago, John Corson, the pastor there in Applegate, Oregon, said, "Heaven's going to be surprising. You're going to be surprised. Who is there? Who's not? And that you are." <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you like know, like. Like, wait, you're going to be surprised, like, who is there? Wow, who's not? Whoa, you know, and then, like, that, you are, right? Like, that, that, that was pretty cool. I like that. Well, here we know, Jesus says, that people are going to say, Lord, Lord. People love to say, like, Jesus is Lord. Praise the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Like, oh, I know them. I'm their friend. And then, like, well, I don't, and all of a sudden, there they are. They're a famous person. Like, I don't really know them. I, was, I made it up. I don't really know them. Stop. Like, it'd be awkward, Right? Like, oh, I know them. Like, well, hey, this is them right there. No, I don't, I don't really know them. I was, I was making it up. You'd be embarrassed to come before someone that you said you knew who's important. Like, like oh, I know Pastor Chuck Smith. And then uh, you say, let's go talk to my dad. Well, I, I actually don't know him. You know, like, it would be embarrassing to say you know someone and then, like, you're in an embarrassing situation. Like, well, of course, you, you told me you know Pastor Chuck. Like, I don't know Pastor Chuck, right? Like, that would be embarrassing. So we don't get out of this one. You can tell you walk, you can go through planet earth for 80 years, plus go like, I know Jesus, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Hey, demon come out, dead rise, all this stuff, Jesus, is Lord, and then you get into heaven. Jesus is saying this is not me, this is this isn't Joey, this is Jesus. And he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Hey, Jesus, it's me. Like, I don't. Not everyone. The word is not, so we have enter, beware, and not are the lead words on these three different segments. Not everyone he says. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now earlier he said your Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. Now he says my Father in heaven. Did you catch that? As we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount? Our Father who art in heaven. Your Father in heaven. Your Father in heaven. Your heavenly Father. It's all that. Look, this is getting serious right here. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Whoa. We've got some different terminology working here now. This is more reverent. You know, my father. I'm not talking about our father or your father. I'm talking about my father. You do the will of my father. Don't come into the house of my father saying, Lord, Lord, to me, you do the will of my father. So it's a doing. Many will say to me in that day, verse 22, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that, we did this. These are religious things, right? These are religious things. Very religious to cast out demons, to prophesy. Oh, very religious very spiritual. Do, do many wonders. Very spiritual. But how about you just do what God's word says? Everyone likes a light show and lava lamps. No one likes a towel, to wipe feet, and tears of brokenness. Everyone wants a show. If you want a cool pastor, you don't want a broken pastor. And pastors want to be cool, not broken. It's in us. We are under a death sentence. Our pride in our flesh under a death sentence. And we need to let God do that work in our lives, all of our lives. Because someday we're going to stand before the Lord. And we're going to say, Lord, Lord, and our works will be tested by fire. And we're in because we're in the Lamb's Book of Life, not in the books that are opened, which the Bible describes both. Books are open for unbelievers. Lamb's Book of Life for those who are saved through faith in Jesus. But as much as we want to hear the Lord say, because Billy Graham used to always say, what do you hope Jesus will say? You picture like Dan, rather. Well, Billy, what do you hope the Lord will say? I hope he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter to the joy of your Lord. Billy Graham used to always say that, the great evangelist. And that's what we'd hope to hear him say, because that's Matthew 25. That's the good, the good one. But Jesus right here says that he's going to tell many, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, I looked up this word lawlessness because it's an important word to know, right? This is a key word in this, like, I don't normally go after the Greek, but this one, like, no, nah, I need to really know this word. It just means that, to not obey the law. So to be lawless. So you think, okay, lawless, well, we just spent two years in God's law, right? Genesis to Deuteronomy. God's law is clearly revealed of right and wrong. The Ten Commandments is clearly revealed what is right and wrong. So God's law won't save us because we can't keep it to be saved but it is still a standard of truth for what's right so we know that that we have that standard by which we are governed governed by God's word and governed by his spirit and we're not perfect but we're in progress and we're, we're going forward that's what we're trying to do see there's a whole world that doesn't want God governing them or his word governing them So many people have tried to force any influence of God's word out of our society, which is the foundation of the greatness of our society. But no matter how much they might force out God's word of our society, make sure it's not forced out of our hearts and our lives. Because God's word is meant to govern us. So capsulized so well in 2 Timothy 3.16 that that it's there. The word of God is there to guide us in instruction and truth and doctrine in in correction and reproof, that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible tells us in James chapter 2, as the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without works, the works of obedience to the obvious things of God's word by his spirit working in and through us for his good pleasure and for his glory. So this last thing Jesus says here is a reminder to us to just keep our eyes on Jesus and to obey his word as it's clearly revealed, as best we know how, to be humble, to be pliable and teachable, and not fear that day, but to rejoice in that day. To make that a glorious day. So we enter by the narrow gate who is Jesus and Jesus alone. We, are, we, we can check fruit to see what leaders, what their philosophies, what they produce, how they treat humanity, how it affects them. And we can separate the good tree from the bad tree. And we can stay on a good path. Or as it says in Psalm 1, to, to not stand in, the, in the, the counsel of the scornful but to stand in the company of the righteous. Good friends. And then to make sure that we're here on that day, well done, good and faithful servant, because we really are sincerely trying to go forward and do the right things on a day-to-day basis, as best we know how, through faith in Jesus Christ. This is heaven's reality. This is the way.